Welcome, welcome, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy. And you people give me a pain! And I'm AJ, and I'm checking into the hotel wearing sunglasses, so no one will recognise me. Can't (laughs) tell it's me, I could be anyone. I can't see that it's AJ. I've no idea who it is. Especially in this small village where everyone knows everyone else, except for the two outsiders. (laughs) Is that really you? Is it? (laughs) I'll take them off. Ah! (laughs) Oh my god, it is OJ! Wow. Um, So today, we are talking about guilt. Not any residual guilt that we might feel about anything. No, it's not confession time from AJ and Andy. (laughs) Not about your guilt as listeners. We don't want any listeners' letters or... Listeners letters. (laughs) Dear AJ and Andy, I'm having a problem. Um, No, The Episode Guilt, Series 1, Episode 8. We are officially at the end of this episode at the halfway point. Whoop whoop. Yes, that was a bit of an understated whoop whoop. It was, but it was only because at the same time I just realised we didn't have the plot summary in the show notes. (laughs) Oh, right, but I didn't write that because I thought we had the new the new approach. Oh, it's in my approach. Yes. Got you, got you. Oh, well, then it's me. I've let the side down. Let me just pull up an episode summary very quickly. <laughs> Lifeline are keen to discover who portrayed Romsey and Victor. Curtis decides to travel to France, but we don't know where in France. <laughs> in real life, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I'll start that again. I shouldn't be silly in the middle of a plot summary. No, that was good. That was good. I liked it. Curtis decides to travel to France to see if the traitor can be found. Albert elects to send Monique after Curtis, as he still does not trust him. Posing as an evader, Curtis meets Hugh Neville and begins to piece recent events together. Oh, I like that. That's a good plot summary. (laughs) Yeah, that's AJ complimenting my, um, my episode reviews that I wrote. I don't know, probably 20 years ago on the (laughs) the old Secret Army website, which I don't maintain. So normally we look at the writer and director, um, but we don't need to today because we covered them both last time. Yes, NJ Crisp, Norman, and Paul Annette. The interesting thing is, I remember when I interviewed Paul in London many years ago, that um, he said, well, originally I wasn't down to direct this episode. Uh, someone else entirely, even though N.J. Crisp had written them both. He said, well, it makes sense. There's a symmetry to Crisp having written them both, and I direct them both, because I'll have already worked, particularly with the guest actors. I should have established some sort of um, um, connection with them and understanding about their characters. So, yeah, Glaister agreed that it would make more sense to switch them off another episode, don't know which it is, so that they would direct both Lost Sheep and Guilt. And I think that was the right choice. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So, well done, Paul, for standing up for that. So, let us set now, for the listeners, the locations-based task. We don't care who does it, but there is a prize for the listener who can establish where this place is. There's quite a lot of clues. We know, we think, that this is a town near (laughs) near Tours. Sorry, I just love this. It's like... 
It's a town in France. Now we want <laughs> to go and find it. No, there's more. You wait. There's so much more. I know, more, I, think. I know, but it's just it's just so funny as a starting point. <laughs> it's a town in France. But in this town there is a hostelry, I'm gonna call it, called Auberge du Chamois. As in the leather. Chamois leather, isn't it? Chamois. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a cafe sablon. Now, this this doesn't narrow it down so much. There's a boucherie. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I hear boucherie, I've, I think of Adina in the France episode of Abfab when she said, I'll just go to the, the boucherie and the boulangerie. <laughs> I've got money. I've got money. I'll be fine. Um, she can come back with a baguette or two if she steals it. Um, and Chamon de Fer. Do you know what Chamon de Fer means? I do not. Enlighten me, please. That means railway, I think. So all of those elements should come together to provide you with more than enough information to identify this town for us, please. So anyone who can do that, there's there's an amazing prize awaiting you. I might be potentially throwing a spanner in the works, (laughs) but those could just be signs put up by the production team, couldn't they? I can't believe you just said that. (laughs) Of course they could. And of course, the fact that, more importantly, these... This these was 40 August, years ago. <laughs> these August establishments probably don't exist. AJ here. Enough of this nonsense. You'll be happy to know that we solved the mystery of where this episode was filmed. Thankfully, we didn't need to do hours of detective work, nor travel around France. I was simply re-listening to Andy's interview with Angela from a couple of years ago and realised that she actually names the town. So we think this episode was filmed in a place called Saint-V, which is spelled S-A-I-N-T-V-I-T, Saint-V. So this episode went into the studio on the 13th of September 1977, following summer filming in wherever that place is. Then it was broadcast just over a month later on the 26th of October 77. I really enjoyed this episode. And when I did my first watch through, this was the one where I think I noted it down as being like, yes, I'm going to just make a note that that was the episode that I really, really enjoyed. And I just felt really intrigued, especially by the character of Monique and was like, oh, what's her backstory? Why is she described in this way, portrayed in this way? And I was just I think this is the one that just kind of got my attention and got me kind of starting into this obsession, which I am now experiencing. (laughs) <laughs> not with them, not necessarily with Monique. They're experiencing. <laughs> the show. What, what is it you're experiencing? An obsession with Secret <laughs> an Army. Obsession. They're, they're experiencing an obsession. If you can't tell over the airwaves, <laughs> that's what's happening. I am experiencing an obsession. I might want to do that whole segment again. I'm not with it today either. No, I like that. Okay. Yes, I think that's something that's fascinating about this episode is we get Angela Richards' character of Monique Duchamp out in the field doing this exciting spy-based stuff, which we'll get into. There's a broader character um, exploration to do with Monique. That is, what has she been through before? Why is it that she is hard under a shapely exterior? The phrase I didn't use as my opening moment. Um, Why is she willing to kill someone without compunction? More likely than Lisa, apparently, according to Albert. Yeah. Well, beneath that shapely exterior, Monique's as hard as they come. She knows what she's doing. Yes, but I think she allows friendship to influence her more than the rest of us do, if I may say so. She's a loyal girl. 
She wants to believe in John Curtis, that's true. She has a soft spot for him. But if she finds out she's wrong, she'll have even less compunction than you would, Yvette. As AJ put in their notes, what has Monique been through before? We'll never know, unfortunately, but <laughs> it was an intriguing entry into the yeah. Secret Army uh, watch long. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, I guess my starting point is, part of it is that there's finally a lot more focus on the Lifeline regulars and we get some really good scenes between them and I really, really enjoyed diving into them again, ready for this episode. Yeah, I did. It's just, again, I mean, we said already that that Second Chance is where the series really begins because we're really getting into the characters and this this develops them further and we really feel that we're starting to get to know them. There's still more that can be done, particularly with like Alan and, and Natalie, but we're still getting quite a lot now yeah. that is, is feeding in. It's still not anywhere near to what we're going to get, but we really feel this is coming together now in terms of the regulars, I think. Shall we carry on talking about Monique in this episode? Because there's quite a lot to cover, I think. We've both got quite a lot of points, haven't we? Yeah, go for it. Let's let's do a let's do a Monique deep dive. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for a Monique deep dive. We have the scene um, in the beginning where her and Albert are discussing her going down to France. Yeah, um, really, really like it. Really like the bit where she um, she you can see first of all that she's really familiar with using a gun, which is also very interesting. And I really enjoyed how she pretends to shoot the ceiling at Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I'm sure your wife will be pleased. You can sit and hold hands and talk about old times. That should calm her down a bit. Yeah, and I, I just know, I don't know, but I know that Angela put that in. Yeah, yeah. Because it's exactly her sort of humour. Yeah. It, may, it immediately reminded me of her being silly when we were rehearsing the, the Condide evening that we had in London, in Islington. And I just remember how she she could be really silly in moments and just sort of like, it's exactly what Angela would do if she's handed a gun. <laughs> She'd make it about silly. <laughs> I'm just imagining now, like someone just walks up and like, here's a gun. Aha. <laughs> like, poof, poof. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what kind of silliness was present during the Condide evening? Oh, just sort of like putting little jokes into the, the script that we prepared and sort of like, you know, talking about smuggling in things through vegetable with, with vegetables and just, just stuff that we'd kind of not really worked out until we were on the stage and just little things she put in and little jokes, even just like little kicks of her leg to the side, whatever it was, they came out of her, her just genuine, her general playfulness. Yeah. And it was just, it was really lovely to see her at work and to realise, oh God, yeah, she's she's a professional. She knows what she's doing and she sees it comes out of the process as much as the existing script. So I think, yeah, this is absolutely Angela having fun with the gun. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I really like in the Condide evening is, um, I think she sings that, I can't remember the title of the song, but the one about being... Unlucky in gambling and unlucky. Oh yeah, I'm unlucky. Yeah. And then at the end, she's like, "I just wanted to throw that one in there," and she kind of pauses for a second and then goes, "Because I like it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's a good reason.
I threw that number in because I like it. <laughs> I was in the right time frame, 1925, uh, Coldwater. So what I wanted to say about Monique and her being selected to go down the line for this, for this adventure is there is an element to this, which I still love, but it's like suddenly she's presented as capable without any sort of backstory or reason why <laughs> she's able to do this. And it really reminds me of that moment in Pyramids of Mars, my favourite Doctor Who story, where Sarah suddenly is able to fire a gun at the incendiary device on the rocket. And it was just like, yeah, it's cool. She's firing. She's, she's brilliant. She's amazing. She's Sarah Jane. Of course she can do that. But it's a bit like that. Monique, yeah, she can go down the line. She knows how to use a gun. It's like, well, we've no evidence of this. There's nothing in previous... <laughs> but I, I'll go with it because it's brilliant and it's great character development for, for a woman. Yes. Um, in the series. So I'm not going to argue against it. But I think it's probably just something about how male writers don't weave this in early enough and they don't think through women characters and their backstories particularly back then and you know that could easily have been part of both of their storylines Sarah and Monique you know that this was something that they'd done before if there was just a bit more thought I think that's an excellent point do you think even as early as series one Angela would have been like you're gonna give me more to do then or am I just gonna be stuck behind the bar <laughs> or yeah, but I would say episode eight is probably too early for her influence to have been felt. Okay. But I don't know that for definite. I know she was she was obviously listened to enough that by episode five they put in Memories Come Gently. Yes. So possibly. Which is heard again this episode, isn't isn't it? Yes, it is, but it's it's interesting because it's it's kind of like an oldie gramophone recordy version, which they must have created, which is great at great lengths because it was it's a new song. Yeah. <laughs> so I was fascinated that they'd actually old times it. I can't use the correct words to describe what they did to that. No, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying old times it. Let's add it to the dictionary. I also enjoyed Monique's um, sarcasm of you know, oh, you can hold hands and. Oh, reminisce so about lovely. old times and it's again that's very Monique just felt really Monique in this episode and I really enjoyed all of the Moniqueness <laughs> yeah she hasn't had the chance to be Monique yet and if you're watching it having watched it before you're waiting for her to be the Monique Monique we know <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've said Monique too many times now it's now sounding like a weird word yeah if our listeners are doing um, a drinking game whilst listening to the, this show you're <laughs> sozzled now <laughs> So many shots in just two minutes there. <laughs> exactly. I would like to comment on Lisa's um, perception of Monique. Mm. And she's saying, oh, yeah, the thing is, Monique's more guided by friendship. And I thought, no, you're very wrong, Lisa. That's not what it is at all. She is guided by her gut and by instinct. And she does have a very strong sense of who she trusts and who she doesn't. And that's very different to being guided by friendship. Saying that makes it sound like you might have doubts about someone, but you trust in your friendship above that kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's not the same at all. And I just loved how Albert fiercely defends her. How lovely is that? There is a connection there. There is an understanding that she is fierce and she is capable and that she can be trusted. And that he, he implies that he trusts her with his life. Yeah. Which is really good. And that gives a real essential core to that, that, that Candide duo, which I, I find very pleasing. 
And I guess it's something else that connects them together, that they are both capable of things like that. We've talked before about how Albert can just go off, murder someone, and then come back and go, (laughs) hey-ho. So maybe Monique's done the same. Yeah, so um, can you remember anything from the books? There's an incident where she follows someone, but then that person she's following catches on and... She nearly, she nearly gets hurt, doesn't she? But oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, because the the just to say for those who aren't aware that the original Secret Army book is not it's unusually it's not a dramatization of any series one episodes. It is um, a prequel, totally to before we see the series. So for fans of the series, it's a must I think to get that. It's got a picture of Lisa on the front with her beret. And a woolly gloves. <laughs> and a woolly gloves, which you got to love a bit of woolly glove action. Although I will just sound the sexism klaxon if you're reading it now. Oh, of course, yes. And you're not used to literature from the time period. Yes, it's not great. You might be in for a shock. But I think it is consistent in that sense of Monique's not very good at following people without them noticing, because I think that happens in the book and in this episode, so... Yeah, I think we should lean into this for a moment. What have you got to say about this? What's wrong about how she spies? <laughs> it's just really strange, isn't it? And I, I, I can't put my finger on what it is about this episode. Is it just that they're trying to do a bit of spy story, but then because it's in a small village, it just doesn't. it's just not going to work because everyone's immediately going to know that Curtis and Monique have popped up and that they're there for some reason? Or is it because... Monique's not very good at following people without being noticed. And so Curtis immediately cottons on and that's what we're supposed to learn about her character. I'm not sure. Discuss. Well, I'd like you to talk about her disguise, AJ. Because <laughs> I've banged on about it for weeks. <laughs> it's definitely your thing. <laughs> AJ, this one's on you. <laughs> I think it. I think it's also not... I'll go into the disguise as well, but I think it's also not helped by the... It's just a moment where Secret Army is unintentionally funny because you have everyone come off the train um, and then you just have Monique, like, step out from behind some boxes. <laughs> and it, it just doesn't quite work. But, yes, so she's wearing sunglasses. My top tip for Monique is look at the people around you and emulate them to fit in. So if no one else is wearing sunglasses, wearing sunglasses will make you stand out more. There you go. Ooh. Top tip from AJ there. I hope you're writing these down at home. <laughs> Spying 101 with AJ. My other top tip is if you're going to wait. Oh, wow, there's a range of tips. Get your pens ready. No, I'm not going to go. I think that's it. If she could just do that, that would get her 20 times further. Than... I would also say, can I add a tip then? Yes. Don't travel down in the very same small train as the person you're following. Yes, also a top tip. Because <laughs> it's a time, it's quite a small train. And I'm just like, oh my God. I think if Curtis even suspected he was being followed, he'd do a... Recce of the train. A, pay, a recce of the train. I mean, then we wouldn't have this storyline because it would have all happened on the train. It's like, shit, Monique, you're here. I, I'm annoyed. You people give me a pain. Well, no, it would still happen. <laughs> It would still happen because he's letting it happen, isn't he, to confront her? I suppose, yeah. He could just say, oh, I've actually seen her, but I'm not going to let on. Yeah, which could have happened. That could have happened and we... True. He could have popped to the loo on the train and seen her in her sunglasses, pretended he didn't see her. Yeah. (laughs) And the story would carry on just the same. Actually, you're right, so it's okay. Yeah. It doesn't change the fact that Monique is a bit shit at spying. 
She really is, which is quite disappointing because they're like, oh, underneath that shapely exterior, she's as hard as they come. Well, it's all been well and good that you're happy to kill someone, but they're going to notice before you approach them with the gun, aren't they? So <laughs> you've lost your advantage there. I don't... I, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with all this Monique hate. <gasps> no, there's no hate. <laughs> I, know you're not, I know you're not hating on Monique. I'm joking. It's just my frustrations with the writing, Andy. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But what is it that she wants in the suitcase so badly that she goes back in to risk... You know, she goes when she's ultimately found by Curtis. What is she in the suitcase for again at that point? Oh, I don't think we know. I think she's just having a look. Oh, OK. It's good that she's like looking through the window um, to see, you know, Curtis talking with the inspector. But then, couldn't she do that from another window? I don't know. She's not giving herself long, is she? She's got to dash back once he stands up and walks a few metres back to the hotel. And I think that moment is probably one of my favourite moments in this episode, is when when she... Well, two moments. The first time when she grabs the key. And I'm going to use a word I don't often use. She grabs the key with Elan. (laughs) That's what she grabs the key with. She just snatches it on the way past. Love it. Love the way Angela did that. But also on when she puts it back just before Curtis comes back and it's still swinging on the hook. Yeah. It's, it's really tense and exciting and cool. It is. And even though I knew what would happen, it made me feel tense again rewatching it. <laughs> I was like, come on, get out in time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do think it is um, a really good plot twist. Yeah. That Curtis knows all along because you kind of start to think like, oh, you know, oh, she might get caught. And then it's like, ah. Yeah. The sto- Again, the story isn't going where you expect it to, which is what I always praise Secret Army for. Yeah. So I think we'll come back to Monique's um, confrontation with Curtis maybe a bit later. But I'd like to skip back to earlier in the episode, if I may. Please do. Please. Do. Oh, can I add another point about while we're talking about Monique? Yes. Monique, Monique. Have we mentioned the name <laughs> enough today? Monique. I really love it when she calls Albert and we just see Albert and Lisa in the Condides. I'll have to play it in because Bernard Hepton just gives the best chuckle ever. Yes, yes, I see. Now, you look after yourself. (laughs) And then you kind of have a little bit of a lover's, you know, oh, good to talk to you, you know, (laughs) great to talk to you kind of thing. Oh, you too, that kind of thing. And then you just see Lisa just look so exasperated at the table, like, will you stop it so we can talk business now, please? And I really loved that moment. I thought that was great. So I think the thing that's most fudged in this episode, there are a few things, and I I feel like I'm a very strong critic suddenly of an episode that I formerly loved. I know. Um is I really don't like the bit where London sends an agent near the start. Mm. And it just doesn't work because it's very dark. And I think you could have not bothered to have all of this these moments where there's someone arriving by Lysander or whatever it is. And, and it's all to point the finger to Curtis, another betrayal. But I think it's really badly handled. And we don't care about this London agent because we don't know who it is. And if we'd met them... Or if they'd had a speaking scene, I would have cared about them being betrayed. But I don't care about this this part of the story. And I don't think it's clear what's happening. And I think it's just, it's a missed opportunity. Mm. And I think it, honestly, save some budget, spend more time down in the unknown town. And actually, and more time with Monique doing cool stuff than something which could have been reported speech. 
Yes. Agree. Gosh. Agree. <laughs> My slow response there was just because I was trying to do a like, it it just, lots of stuff has happened in previous episodes that seem to have a similar weight. But in this episode, it's suddenly worth sending an agent from London. Yeah. And and they're like, oh, we've got to go down and find out who betrayed the line. But but do they? What what would happen if they don't find out who betrayed the lion? Mm. Because they weren't not they wouldn't normally be down there. They're, the only reason they're down there is because that guy, Romsey, got <laughs> on the wrong train and got lost. Yeah. Although they do seem to have a mate down there in the form of Victor anyway. Yeah. But but it doesn't the the line line, the main escape line isn't through there, is it? Is it? No. He's on the wrong train. Yeah. So the fact that they've got Victor there in the first place is so lucky. Yeah, yeah. Ridiculously lucky. You could one one could even say contrived. <gasps> wow. <laughs> None of this affects my love of this episode, but no. I was but I do watch it going they could have just all stayed at home and it would I think it would have been okay. Totally. <laughs> because yeah. there's no there's no risk in that the English author and wife haven't got anyone else to grass up. The inspector wouldn't know of anyone else. They can't take back Romsey giving away all the information because he's already been captured. So there's... Yeah. It's unfortunate. They they should just simply tighten up their security and move on. (laughs) And in fact, what we'll discover is as a result of this, this narrative, that this is what's going to cause problems further down line in the story yes so by doing this big adventure down in france they're going to cause themselves further problems later on so you know let it lie they wouldn't let it lie so then having thought of all of that the conclusion i then reach is it's it's curtis's revenge killing but for some reason he thought he thought it was worth sending an agent in from london for like i don't know (laughs) it's a lot isn't it yeah yeah this is the kind of thing that when you're a writer and you're like, I've got this story and it's it's a really great story. And then someone else just goes, you've got some really big plot holes there. And you're like, shh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've written it now. Shh, it's fine. No one will notice. I can't face the thought of rewriting it. So please just be quiet. Yeah. Um... Speaking of shit spying. <laughs> We're still on that train, No, we? not Monique's shit spying. <laughs> okay. What do you think of Curtis in this episode? Because, yes, it's good that he um, can tell when he's being followed and stuff. You, you're kind of establishing his competence there. Um, we know he, well, he, he's going into a small village. He's making himself known to everyone. He's not wearing a disguise. He's not changed his hair or yeah. anything like that. He's doing that thing of, I'm a cocky, confident man, so I'm just going to introduce myself to the inspector. And you're like... Do you need to take this fertiliser thing so, so far? <laughs> Although I suppose it does, you know, help him establish that the fence hasn't really been fixed and so on by going around to yeah. his house and pretending to sell fertiliser. But then, as we've kind of just discussed at the end of the episode, everyone knows who he is. Everyone's seen him. Inspector, my name is Morius. Oh. Will you join me in a drink? Uh, well, that's very good of you, monsieur, but I don't think I... Uh... Well, perhaps I do have time. My credentials, in case you wonder who I am. Oh, it's of no consequence. 
Yeah, and that's going to be a challenge later on. And yeah. I think it's a high-risk strategy and not one that would be recommended to front up to the inspector in the town square and say, hey, I'm Mr. Morales and I do this. Yeah. it's that's. I understand why it's done, because it's to get information. But really, honestly, you don't want to be remembered by an inspector. Right, right. I think what they should have done is just sent someone else in. I'm a cousin, or like, I'm a cousin of, you know, Sheila who lives down the road. <laughs> just come to visit. <laughs> but yeah, so, and then, again, so he he's come at the end. He knows he's, they've all decided in advance they're going to kill whoever betrayed them. All right, guys. And then he just comes in and he's, okay, he's got an accent. But it's, it's again, they can see through it right away. Hugh, Hugh Neville knows that he's not what, who he says he is. So then why, what's the point of going in and making it really obvious that you're there for some dodgy reasons? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand, Curtis. I agree with you. And he makes a big footprint while he's there. Yeah. And I think I would say at the, at the core of any good spy work would be not being recognisable, someone who's in the shadows, someone who you don't notice. Surely that's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, or like a noticeable but in a misleading way. Yeah. And, and then also don't leave a witness. Don't drive a witness and I always walk away from the house with you both in the car. Well, I wanted to get into this <laughs> because I'm really confused about this because I was even kind of disagreeing with, with parts of my own review from however many years ago, 11 years ago. Actually, I disagreed with a lot of my review from oh. 11 years ago. I'll, I'll have you know. Um that and this is something mainly just because I didn't bring it up in my review and that is you know yeah it's crazy that Monique and Curtis get to meet Dorothy yeah <laughs> and that she could identify them both and that she's in this sort of pickup car situation but she says you know Monique says oh well that, this means you didn't have to kill her and I was like well no it doesn't you absolutely should be killing her at this point right because she's a really obvious witness so, I don't know. It's just odd to me. I think it's too much of too much of a loose end. And if you have no compunction about killing, as apparently they don't, well, she doesn't even more than him, then Dorothy should Dorothy should cark here. Really, as lovely as her hair is. So, welcome to our podcast, Criticizing a Secret Army. <laughs> An episode by episode review where AJ and Andy just diss their favorite show now. Well, no, we're just we're just exploring it because there's so much of this we, we do love. And we yeah, will come to yeah. some more of those moments as we go through. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I, know. I think the fact that we are discussing it in this much detail just shows how much we care. We're criticising it because we yeah. care. Or it just demonstrates how sad we are. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. So I did also want to say about Curtis going on these manoeuvres that... Um, I don't buy any of that stuff that he says. This is good character stuff, by the way. This is good stuff. I'm not critiquing. This is good stuff. But I don't <laughs> buy any of this stuff. Like I shan't pretend I enjoy it. Um, I think he is absolutely feeling his his white male heteronormative he fantasy. Loves he loves it. <laughs> he's off on manoeuvres. And he's like, oh, I'm really suave. And I'm in my business suit. But, <laughs> but he's... Desperate to go out on this adventure because this is what he's not been allowed. That's why he's so angry all the time in Secret Army because Lifeline don't let him do anything. Um, so yeah, 
We don't buy that, but that is good character stuff, that we don't buy it. Yeah. I had no recollection of the fact that the very lovely Juliet Hammond went to this town too. I had the exact same thought when I saw it on the episode notes. I was like, I thought the same because I was like, oh, she's here as well. (laughs) So, yes, but it's lovely that we see Natalie uh, in the town square and that she she approaches um, where the inspector and Neville are talking, but not like she doesn't go up and say, hey, I'm Natalie, (laughs) thankfully. (laughs) And she doesn't wear sunglasses. No, but let's talk about the scene with Madame Victor. I believe you you love this scene. I did really love this scene. Again, it's just really nice to see Natalie in scenes being used, (laughs) but it's just a really nice scene. I mean, I don't really have more to say about it than that, I'm afraid. I just really liked it and it was really nice. What I particularly liked about it was when she whispered the, um, I think it was when she whispered sit down to her. She didn't just say a lesser actor would have said sit down. Yeah. But she was like, no, sit down. It was, it was a real good choice. That made me think, yeah, this is Juliet coming into her acting powers. I mean, I think Juliet herself says that she's still learning her craft very much during this first series because it was her first big acting role. But um, here, I think she does a really good job of, of coming over as empathetic, caring, but also not just delivering the lines in a way that is obvious, but like to make that decision to, to whisper that line, I thought was really, really nice. One thing that I like as well about her performance in this scene is... Um... At the end, she gives what's her name? <laughs> what's the widow's name? Madame Victor. Oh, we're just we're just going with Madame Victor. Mm. She gives Madame Victor's hand a squeeze, and it just conveys yes. so much emotion in the hand squeeze before she leaves. And I think again, just as we saw Angela's input, I think that's Juliet's input because it's just the sort of thing she'd do in real life. Speaking of that scene with Madame Victor, yeah. that's a really good example of the theme throughout this episode, isn't it? Of the episode title of guilt, because you have Lifeline giving money to Madame Victor. Mm-hmm. And then you have the inspector also giving money to Madame Victor, even though his fence isn't fixed. Yeah. Do we think that's out of guilt? Oh, definitely. That's absolutely part of the title, yeah. And then what was some of your other examples of guilt? Well, we have, we have Neville's guilt, of course. Not just having killed, having effectively killed Romsey, but the way that guilt plays out into how he acts. So, you know wanting to invite guests around for dinner where he just means Dubois and trying to pretend he's got a normal existence and that he's not betrayed anyone, just the way he is in his 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 sheltered little English life in France. And then when Curtis comes in and pretends to be an airman, you have Dorothy wanting to kind of, feeling guilty about what's happened previously and maybe wanting yes. to make amends and look after this other airman again as well. And yeah. even though they know that it could cost them their lives if they're caught doing it and i think there's a there's a bit of guilt this is starting to stretch it from monique for actually (laughs) not having trusted her instincts about curtis and actually having gone out and you know tracked one of their own Mm. possibly i don't think she feels too guilty about it because she sees the the value in in following that investigation to its conclusion to find out for definite yeah but she personally she personally believes that john curtis is a good person which is interesting because this, I think, okay, you can you can accept that he is not a spy or a double agent, but I don't understand really why Monique likes Curtis because there must be a lot of scenes, a lot of moments where he's... It's all off camera. It's all off camera. <laughs> exactly my point. Because 
All he does is to stride in, and then everyone's like, oh, God, he's on again. But somehow, Angela, not Angela, you see, I said that, and I think this is the clue. Monique has this connection with Curtis where she likes him. And I'm like, well, I think it's actually, again, this is Angela coming through, because I think Angela got on really well with Chris Neem. And I think this kind of, I'll take that as a character thing. So, yeah, I, that's my suspicion there. But, yeah, I thought that, because they were like, oh, they're such good friends. And I was like, oh, sorry, that was an unintentional someone else's episode series name. You know, and you're like, are they? I don't, I don't know why they're saying that yet. Yeah. But then did you find that undermined the storyline of Curtis potentially being a double agent? Because they are like, oh, we, you know, we don't trust him yet. We'll have him followed and stuff. But then I was like, well, I, I do. If, if Monique and Lisa trust him, I do because I'm trusting them as the main characters. Yeah, that's that's and that's technique, isn't it? That's writing techniques that you feel on the same page as them. But it's interesting that the women support and what is that about identification and character that we're giving the women to be? It's, it's kind of possibly sexist. Yeah, we believe the women because it's empathy, and the women are emp- empathic, and men aren't empathic, which obviously is. There's definitely something there, isn't there, about um, oh the 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 female characters bring intuition to the table. Yeah. Exactly. That's very trustworthy. It's all emotion-based because they're so emotional beings. Yeah, yeah. But men, no intuition. They've got to do investigations. <laughs> and yet we've had one of the most emotional airmen just go down the line, Romsey, and fuck everything up <laughs> because of his, how expressive he is and how emotional he is. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I would like to commend this episode for, and particularly Paul Annette and the designer, for the children playing in the street, the, the different costumes, the way that little town is brought to life by the fact that there are it's not empty it doesn't feel like a ghost town it feels like there's stuff going on there and it feels of the period so i think that really does work so top marks for that i really like paul annette's direction it's just you always feel like you're in a safe pair of hands uh with him and he just has some really nice yeah we should talk about some of those shots yeah yeah so i think they they break up the there's variety in there but not in a way that jars you out of watching the episode so um I call it shelf cast, <laughs> but but I'm not dissing it. I'm not dissing it. That's just the nickname I'm giving it. But I I love that some of the shots are filmed from through through the shelving. It it's just really visually interesting. So you have that both at the Condide and at the Neville's house. Um, binocular cam is back when um I think is it when Monique looks through the window. Yeah, at the Cafe Sablon. <laughs> He he likes a mirror shot, doesn't he? Does Paul on it? He does. We had um, we had people in the mirror in on the barge, didn't we? In Second Chance. Yes. Oh yes. Good. Good linking, linking it back to previous episodes, and they just look really nice. Um, I like it when someone takes the time to set up a mirror shot. Something I loved about Christopher Neem when he found the Nevilles, his face lit up with the surprise and the joy of kind of effectively being back in England and the familiarity of hearing English voices and then being quite posh English voices <laughs> and that really beautiful rose garden and just how that was in his England. But also he managed to connect that with a, a confusion and a like, what? In his eyes and the way he moved his head around to show this was a, a joyous thing to find, but also so utterly confusing and out of place. And I think Christopher Neem played that just right. So good acting chops there, Mr Neem. I really enjoyed his performances in the scenes where he is at the Neville's 
house. He he's he's kind of showing just having a whale of a t- his character is having a whale of a time. Yeah. Going in there and just messing everything up for these people. But also he's just so sinister like this bits where he's sat in his chair as a viewer I'm like oh my god it's going to kill me through the screen. He just looks really creepy and then when he's got the knife out Oh, he loves that flick knife, does Chris Neem, doesn't he? And so does Curtis. Yeah, that's kind of... Re- Every time he does that, it's really sinister. You think, oh, well, shit, blood is going to be spilt here. You believe the conviction. What was really good as well um, is it's um, almost like instant makeup, if you will, because he gets a punch from Hugh Neville and then they presumably cut, a makeup artist came in, put the mark of being hit on the face, hmm. on his face, and then he then does the fall to the floor shots. Mm. <laughs> and you're like, oh, he's been hit live. <laughs> <laughs> like You don't often see that, do you? You might get, you often have like a fisticuffs and then yeah. in the following scene, they'll probably be sat being like, oh, my face or something. Yes. Like I thought that was really good. I want to go back to something quite uh, halfway through the episode, if I may, which is when Curtis... You may not. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Denied. Just kidding, just kidding. Is when Curtis says, you people give me a pain. And describes the people in Lifeline as the most cunning, suspicious shower and all of that stuff he says. But what I wanted to point out is that is why Lifeline are going to survive. Yes. That is why they are going to continue throughout the war. Because it is exactly that suspicion and that internal cunning and all of that stuff that's going to keep them going. So I think it's nice that it's pointed out that Curtis is so frustrated by this. And yet... Spoiler alert, Curtis isn't going to go on the whole journey with them through the war. And I think it's because he is more impulsive, sometimes maybe more trusting. I don't know. But he certainly shouldn't be critiquing them for this because these are good qualities to have in wartime. And I just wanted to make that point. Very true. Why? What gives your lot the right to check up on me? We were worried. So am I, permanently. I worry about being shot, getting caught, being tortured. So what's new apart from that? How did the Germans know where that agent was going to land? Oh, so it was me, was it? I wonder why. Oh, yes, of course, to stop him dealing with the man who betrayed Victor. And when I volunteered, it was just to do a, a, a cover-up to make sure whoever it was lived to a ripe old age. No, no one's accusing you of anything. You people give me a pain! You're the most miserable, cunning, suspicious shard I've ever come across. Yes, I've noticed you prefer the French. I have a question. Yes. Was um, was Curtis always going to be written out at the end of series one? Or was it a bit of a Lisa-like situation where events happened and then he was written out as the series went on? Good question. I think my belief, I've never really written about this or talked about this. I think the idea was that he would be in it throughout because I think Bradley is effectively him. Yes. In Lucky Peace and later in series three. And he is effectively Airy Neve. Yes. Who um, was the spy who worked for... It's not SOE, is it? Are you thinking MI9? MI9, is that what I'm thinking of? I used to know all this stuff intimately and in so much detail, but I've kind of... Just pick some letters and pick some numbers. Um, So MI9, yes. So Airy Neve um, is Curtis, effectively. And it was historically accurate that he was there for some of it but more I would say for the Bradley bits than the earlier bits certainly all the stuff about the bivouacking in the Ardennes and all that stuff when the line was at stretch that's all real accurate stuff and what Bradley does then is pretty much what Neve does apart from the uh, not the V2 
rocket bombing. <laughs> but um, so yes, yeah, so, so so what am I getting to? Yes, I think the idea was they'd have this sort of airy Neve character who would be there kind of as a thorn sometimes in Lifeline's side and sometimes as a help. But I think through production and the writing of Series 1, they realise actually he's surplus to requirements and it's more interesting to find out about the Belgian natives and what their interactions are with each other. And actually he's just another character they have to write to. You are listening to Down the Line. A Secret Army podcast. Now I'm going to leap in another direction entirely, if I may. I feel like I've leapt about with gay abandon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm qualified to do such. Um, and that is, I love the fact that we found out more about Neville's motivations. Mm-hmm. And yes, all that stuff about being out of the war. It's not, it's not my war. And it's because he's decided to take himself out of it entirely because of his horrendous experiences on the Somme. Mm -hmm. He talks about the mud filth. He talks about the many corpses being hideous and the men holding in their own intestines. And it's really graphic. And you can tell it's really heartfelt and really painful for him to mention it. And that is what is motivating him to try and stay out of this war at any cost. And I think it's good that we get a bit of motivation there and a bit of understanding perhaps not perhaps not sympathy but certainly some empathy for for why he does does what he does yeah yeah this is gonna sound really silly but you know when you maybe don't realize things or don't see the bigger picture of things Mm. so if you picture aj at school and you know you like you do very set themes don't you in your school lessons so it might be like world war one now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do that. Now we're going to do World War Two. And you do look at how they connect. But also, I think that there's a risk that that separation m- makes you forget to connect it up again. Because mm. this, what you've just said there, remi- reminds me that you have people who've lived through both world wars, if that makes sense. Yeah. But when you study them in isolation, you forget that. Yeah. And I, I had this kind of like moment of real stupidity where I was buying books about I bought one about Belgium in general in the Second World War, which is an amazing book. I'll have to mention it at some point and read some good facts from it. And the same author wrote one about Belgium in the First World War. So I bought that one too. My groaning, groaning bookshelves and my ever-increasing book collection. And um, I didn't realise that Belgium was occupied during the First World War too. (laughs) Because in my mind, I was like, oh, it made so much sense. And I was like, of course, you know, if you have the trenches and things, they're all there. I'd even been there on a school trip to see them. Yeah. But I, I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe I just imagined that the, the Germans came in very nicely, left the rest of Belgium be, and then just dug some trenches and stayed there. But of course they didn't. Yeah. It was an occupied country. And so for people in Belgium, you've got, they're living through two occupations in one lifetime, if you're of that age. I think it was actually the occupation of Belgium that was the key thing that made um, Britain join the war, because it was how terribly the Germans treated the Belgians once they occupied in the First World War. So... Just to let you know, at this point in the podcast, dear listeners, that we had an interesting situation with a smoke alarm needing its battery replacing. So much noise here, you wouldn't believe at my end. And um, AJ was patient as I went to explore the situation. And it... It's fine, I just checked my emails. <laughs> and now we have a situation where we have to replace the battery in it, but it's still squeaking every minute to say... 
I need a battery. I need a battery. But we do not have a battery. So my gallant boyfriend is going to go out and get a battery. So you will, you may hear in the background um, when I'm talking a beep noise, which is the smoke alarm, just trying to be part of the action. Yeah. But um, we, we've decided time is of the essence. We need to continue. But listen out for it. We're making this sound so much more urgent than it is. <laughs> we need to finish this vital episode. Come on! I have another thought to bring up. I just, I, I haven't quite fully articulated this thought, but I just found it interesting of kind of like a who does or doesn't get help in that um, Madame Victor gets some money and Dorothy Neville doesn't get any help, even though she's kind of really completely innocent in all of this. And um, that was just a thought I was kind of left with as the episode came to a close of like, who doesn't doesn't get help? I don't know. I suppose if if they had seen how much she welcomed Romsey into the house and and all of that, and maybe that's why we're thinking about it more because she was she was actually a good yeah um, supporter and actually kind of would have helped. Um, feasibly, she would have become one of the places down the line. Yeah. But although that would be high risk given their English, but um, yeah, it's there is something there, isn't there, about how she gets complete destruction in her life and yet she's not guilty yeah yeah maybe i'm just picking up on the contrast between the two widows and yeah yeah their lives at this point i really felt for her it's it's just a good example isn't it of secret army making you feel for people whose lives have just been utterly destroyed by war because although having said that there is the element of like she's now free of him yeah but she i think she there was there was some love there oh i think so but now she's she's got Good equity in that house. I think she's okay. I think she goes back to England after the war. And I think she's she's fine. Lives off her husband book, husband's book royalties. I mean, you never know. Maybe she did something in France subsequent to this to make amends for what had happened. But then the resistance has killed her husband, so probably she didn't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Dorothy Neville, The Continuing Story. I really wish that Big Finish would um, do what they do for Doctor Who but with Secret Army and explore all of the untold stories. So they, they would have endless stories of Curtis and Monique <laughs> hanging out at the Conteat. <laughs> but they could also have, you know, in the way that they get into, as time goes on, they need more and more stories. So they <laughs> dig deeper and deeper and eventually they would get to Dorothy Neville, the untold story. The untold war years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know whose thoughts I would love to hear about this episode? Oh. Ryan's. Oh, yes. Right, are you ready? This is what... I'm so ready. This is what Ryan thought about guilt. I enjoyed a good power hat for being on a mission. Oh, Monique's power hat. Monique's power hat, Curtis had a hat. And so, did um, Natalie have one as well? She did. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mission hats. Yeah, mission hats. Planning things. I'm planning things and doing things hats, yes. Good stuff. Uh, it was a good one for the for the fallout of the previous episode, so that was good to see, like, mopping up loose ends mm-hmm. or all that sort of thing. The still not sure of be, being about Curtis or not Yeah. when he's on a mission. So it was like, oh, okay, he's not as good for missions as he thinks he is. Yeah. Although I suppose he did complete his mission, so that's fair enough. And you did know Monique was following him. Yes. She was following him with the intent to kill. 
<laughs> I liked her when she like was taking the silencer off of the gun and so it's like badass. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can't think of anything else to say really. Mm. No, that's it. No, I'm that's it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. One of the shorter reviews there from Ryan. But you know, he he doesn't sound as worn down by Secret Army this week and I I'm greatly encouraged by that. He sounds like he's, you know, really into it. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah, he did enjoy it. But I just think because he enjoyed it, he had less to say, if that makes sense. Sometimes you you just think, well, I just enjoyed that and I don't have anything to say about it. So I'd like to get dig in a bit towards the end of the episode and the fallout and particularly just the act. The, I think it's, I've already said, the fight scene is really good. And I love that you really see um, Neville like, a like as Curtis says, a cornered animal. And he does have that fight to survive. And he is actually... In that moment, I would say he is in the war, actually. <laughs> and I loved how that was shot. I think Paul Annette did a brilliant job of that fight scene. But I thought it was a shame that Dorothy is... Dorothy's point of view is all we get of what has happened to him. And I think we need to see in an adult drama series that Curtis has actually knifed him to death. It doesn't have to be too gory, but I do think we should see Neville on the ground. Personally, with some blood. So, yeah. I have um, AJ's top tip number three. If a man's come to your house and you don't trust him, take your gun to bed, and then it can't. the bullets can't be taken out by morning when you need it. And don't leave any manuscripts out with any incriminating storylines in <laughs> them. Better yet, better yet. Sit down at the typewriter and go, whatever you think I've <laughs> I am completely innocent. Ding. And then Curtis will come in and go, oh, he's fine. So what do you, after, out of all of the things we've discussed, what would be your moment of the week? Oh, my moment of the week? I think it is the end of the episode and the fact that it's given to Monique. I love the fact that Monique gets the last line, which is basically saying we all lie sometimes, at least to ourselves. It's necessary to make things bearable. I love that line. And I think it's referring to the fact that she knows in her life that she lies to herself every day. She knows that Albert is never going to leave Andre for her as much as she wants it. So that is a huge part of her daily existence of lying to herself. But I think she's also given this line because it applies more generally to the situation that we've just witnessed, which is Neville lying to himself that everything's going to be okay despite what he's done. And it's not okay. And he actually realises that Curtis is his executioner. And he is going to pay for it. So... All of that, I think, is neatly put into that final, final moment. Yeah. He was writing a book about guilt and remorse. Was it a good book? No. He asked me if I'd ever felt those things. What did you say? What I thought was true, but it wasn't. I lied. We all lie, sometimes. At least to ourselves. It's necessary to make things... I think I will go to sleep now. So what was your moment of the week? I think that. I think um, that and the scenes at the start of the episode with Monique handling the gun and just that intrigue around her character and what she may have had to do already before. And yeah. 
and that and and for me that feeling of of then just being like oh i'm i'm starting to really fall in love with this show mm. yeah and i and i love it and i love this character and it's great and i'd echo that i remember once i saw this one i remember oh, this is why i love this show i mean i liked second chance when I, that was the first episode i saw on the rewatch but this was kind of like, oh yeah, this show is really this. This is as good as I remembered, and it's going to get really exciting now. The women get some action, but it's taken some time for the women to get some action, hasn't it? It's taken some time um, for the writers to give the female characters more to do. And I think this is a huge departure for Jerry Glaster, that he is given he is giving the women actual kind of what he would see as male roles in war. Yeah. And he has to, because he has to play to the material. He has to play to the historical fact that Dee Dee did this stuff. But I think he's actually so reluctant to do it. And I think John Brayson is equally reluctant to do it. And I think the sexism that prevails in the show at the time, in the production team, which certainly Angela and Juliet have talked about, and they felt the maleness of the show oppressing them. And I think that maleness is coming through into the storylines. We don't have any secret army stories from, from women. Oh, you mean like written by women? Yeah, written by women, yeah. And no female directors. Yeah. And they were around. I mean, absolutely. Like Paddy Russell at the height of her powers, for instance, would have been amazing on Secret Army. Um, what things did Paddy Russell direct? She directed Horror of Fang Rock. Oh. Pyramids of Mars. No way. I didn't realise Doctor Who had female directors. No, I know. Is it Fiona Cummings? I know Fiona. Yeah, Fiona Cummings. Yeah. I didn't realise there was um, female directors earlier on in the run. That's amazing that they. Yes. That women have directed epi- those kinds of episodes because they're really good episodes. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, Paddy Russell was directing Horror of Fang Rock at the time that Lisa Codename Rivette was in the studios in London because that was the that was the production that was shifted to Birmingham. So there were there were these people in the business at the time, although famously Paddy Russell, Patricia, um, called herself Paddy so that people wouldn't make assumptions about her before they actually went into working with her because she had to in order to get the respect initially. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings us to Lisa. We have had the episode of Child's Play, but we haven't had her do anything much else that's active. It will happen next episode. I'm already emo- I'm already I'm going to be such an emotional wreck next episode. Listeners, bring your tissues. I'm already crying. But I have to say I'm thrilled that they invested in Angela Richards Monique here and they didn't just send Lisa to go down the line. It would have been a more obvious person because they could have had all that stuff that they brought up with radishes with butter, that the attraction stuff could have come up again. One thing we haven't mentioned at all, I know it's going back into the episode a bit though, is that um after the confrontation with Curtis, we don't know for ages whether she she's been bumped off, and it is quite it is quite kind of shocking violence. Again, a woman is being held at knife point on Secret Army. Yeah, way more than the men do. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed at how easily she was overpowered because it's that kind of thing of like, yeah, I'm going to go down the line. I'm so hard, and then she holds a gun at Curtis, and then it's like, oh no, I've dropped it. And you're like, come on, <laughs> hold on to your guns, <laughs> ladies. Yeah, and I do think it's a shame that Monique's then out of the action for so long. It would have been better, I think it would have been nicer if they'd kind of planned what they were going to do on on camera, because they have a plan. I think the the plan is a bit shit, that effectively Monique's the getaway driver, and that that's all she has to do then. But, um, But she is there, and that's good. But my bottom line note to the production team of Secret Army at this point in 1977 is good, 
Well done. Believe and invest in your regulars. Yes, fully agree. Shall we move on to what our listeners thought of this episode? Yeah, we heard from Nick Heald. That's at N underscore Heald. Good episode, though it did take Curtis and Associates into the realm of killing for revenge rather than specifically advancing the war effort. Assuming, of course, that you can morally differentiate between the two, exclamation mark. Didn't quite buy that Curtis was a knife-in-hand killer, though. I did, in the moment. But maybe he just means because he hadn't killed before, I don't know. Thank you, Nick, for your thoughts. And I'm just going to summarise one of Joe Lidster's tweets. He said, it's the best one yet. With the absolute barefaced cheek of the Lifeline team not trusting Curtis. (laughs) And also said that it was a brilliant piece of television. Fully agree. Good stuff. Thank you, Joe. One thing we haven't mentioned is that there was a drop of audience um, from seven point, down to 7.5 from 9.5 of the previous week. Mm. So I think that isn't about the fact that they, they didn't like Lost Sheep and therefore decided not to watch Guild. I think it's probably more to do with what was on, on the other side. I don't know. But I'd be surprised if it was if it was anything to do with the series and just something to do with the time of year and, and seasonality and all that stuff. But um, what is interesting is that this is a kind of a downward turn of the series fortunes with the audience for the rest of the series. Because it now starts to go down towards the sixes and sevens more regularly. Well, that's not all right. What was everyone doing? I don't know. Maybe it's because... I don't know. I'm cross with them, Andy. <laughs> cross with... That's a long time to keep that rage. Since 1977. Well, it's not like I've lived through that time and held a grudge against them all those years, is it? This is relatively new for me, so I've got time to forgive them yet while still being sensible about it. (laughs) Because I think it, yeah, it goes all the way down to a paltry six million for for Good Friday. What was everyone doing? What was on the other side? Exactly. We don't know. We'll look it up for next time. We won't leave you hanging, listeners. Weirdly, suddenly it goes up to a massive 8.7 million for the very last episode. Which I don't know whether they did good trailers or whatever it was, but Be the First Kid in Your Block to Rule the World, episode 16, got 8.7 million. So that was the, you know, really good note to end on and probably helped with the argument that they should have another series. Mm. But that's it. That's all I have to say on the very wonderful guilt. I feel like like I've been a bit rough with it. I hope it comes through one how much we love it but also it's the joy of looking at things more closely isn't it yeah and if you do look at things really closely you are going to find holes you're going to find issues and and sometimes contrivances but overall it's something you enjoy and if you don't look at it too deeply it's definitely you know it's wonderful tv as people have said but um yeah there are there are some issues therein. But I'm I'm loving it. I, I'm loving looking at all the characters this deeply and yeah. all the storylines this closely and what impacts it has on previous episodes or future episodes. I'm loving it, Andy. I'm having the time of my life. Good stuff. I believe that when this episode draws to a close, you will hear some more sound bites from other fans of Secret Army. This is true, although I've said it in the plural but I've already made the editorial decision to just have one person per episode. (laughs) But yes, when this episode draws to a close, you're going to hear from someone, share their memories of watching the show, of what they love about it. And if you would like to get involved with that, you can get in touch at Secret Army Pod on Twitter or secretarmypod at gmail.com. 
But that's not the only reason for you to get in touch. Why else should they get in touch, Andy? Because we want to continue to hear what people think of individual episodes and share that, get people to share their views. But we would also really dearly love some reviews on our podcasts on all the usual platforms because that really helps with our algorithm that we get reviews. We would like those, those beautiful five-star reviews, please. Yeah, if not, Curtis is going to come round with his flick knife. <laughs> with his flick knife. Wow, these threats are getting quite bad. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next time we go down the line when we take a look at episode nine, Too Near Home. Thank you for your attention. I have been Andy. And I have been AJ. We have also been joined today by Andy Smoke Alarm, who wanted to comment on this episode of Secret Army as well. What a day. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Did you hear a squeak then just at the last minute during my bye? Yeah, I'm quite happy to introduce myself as Val. I started watching Secret Army when I was a kid. Didn't really have much say over it, as kids do nowadays. But uh, uh, being a kid then, my parents just watched all these programmes. And uh, as I said, no argument over over what to watch because there was never a remote to fight over. So, uh, yeah, I just remember it as a kid. I remember the third series quite vividly because I thought things started to really heat up a bit in the third series. And I, I do remember that. I have to say my, my favourite character was Reinhardt. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. His character was superb. As a disgruntled teenager at the time when I first saw it, I remember the first episode where he comes on and Kessler's having a real go at him for not wearing his uniform. And he's like, oh, I prefer to wear my flying jacket. I, I thought, oh, yeah, I, I like this person. <laughs> Leather jacket, yeah. (laughs) I thought, oh, he's got attitude, excellent. I like that. And there was so much packed into that third series. I mean, it was just absolutely unbelievable when you think about it. You could have maybe made a couple of series out of that third series because there was so much there. I mean, there was the thing, things like uh, attacks on V2 rocket factories, <laughs> plague, the Black Death, stuff like that. You know, absolutely uh, amazing stuff. And of course, the, the last one, uh, the last episode that that was aired, the execution. That, that was uh, for for me. That kind of stood out in my mind because I actually thought up until the very point that. Reinhardt got shot, I thought he was going to escape. This idea of uh, the goodie always triumphs and all that sort of thing. And, you know, he, he got shot. I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. <laughs>